When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Moneymaker, the podcast that gives you the tools to enrich your life in every sense of the word. I'm your host, Nelly Galan. Let's get started. Monica, I am such a fan of yours. I'm so happy you're here because I think you are one of the Latinas in this country that is really changing things for Latinas. Tell us everything that's happened. Thank you, Nelly. I mean, I'm a huge fan and grateful to you for everything you're doing for all Latinas and for women across this country. And you know, for me, for the first time, I think that the world really recognized the power of farmworker women. And that was because as the co-founder of Alianza Nacional de Campesinas, I wrote a letter that was published in Time Magazine. It was to women in the entertainment industry who had come forward to disclose sexual violence against them by Harvey Weinstein. And the letter, which was from, from the membership of Alianza, 700,000 farmworker women, basically said to these women, we understand what you're going through because farmworker women are also victims of sexual violence and we believe you. And that letter, which was really written with love, we had no expectation that anyone in Hollywood would even see it, let alone respond. Uh, but what we didn't realize was that the stars aligned and that letter, after it was published, went viral and made it to the women in the entertainment industry. And that letter actually sparked what's now known as the Time's Up movement. Wow, isn't that, I mean, amazing that Again, one woman can write something when we are so quiet. Mm -hmm. And that it doesn't always work out when people do that, but sometimes people hear you. What happened because of that? You know, I think one of the things that happened um, almost immediately was that people took notice of the fact that there are farm worker women in this country. There are women across the nation who are picking, packing, and planting the food that we eat, and most people don't realize that farmworker women exist. Farmworker women have been invisible throughout our history. And so that letter made people stop and recognize the fact that there are women doing that hard work. But the other thing that happened was um, shortly after our letter was published, we read the letter, some of our members read the letter at this march that was taking place in Hollywood, and that was where we made some contact with individuals in the entertainment industry, and America Ferrera reached out and wanted to talk about the letter and how we could potentially work together um, You know, a couple of weeks after the letter was published. And so we worked together to start building the vision around what is now the Time's Up movement. And I think that one of the most incredible moments came right after the new year, after the Time's Up movement was announced in, on January 1st in the New York Times. Uh, America said that she was going to be doing some media and she wanted me to join her for the media. And so she and I went on a morning television show together. And in the interview, the, the woman who was doing the interview had spent quite a bit of time talking to America about her new projects and all of her wonderful work. And at one point she turned to me and she said, isn't it incredible that these women with so much power would do something for women who have no power? And in that instant, my response to her was, Farmworker women have power, and we actually came forward to lend our power to the women in the entertainment industry. And I think that was a really critical moment in the conversation because the, 
the feedback from people around the country who saw that said, oh my gosh, you're right. People aren't understanding the fact that farm worker women have power and you just articulated that. And so I think that that was a, a, a cultural shifting moment because it forced people to see that even when people don't have wealth or maybe when they're less visible, that doesn't mean we're not powerful. And I really think that that one interview and that one small piece of the interview sort of sent the tone. Women who are very visible and women who are less visible, women who are high paid and women who are low paid have come together to figure out how we can use our collective power to make great change and that's what we've been doing. I think it's important to start by saying, I know you know the facts about Latinas and that in this country we are at the lowest rung of power in terms of pay equity, in terms of all sorts of issues. That's right. Can you talk about that? Because I think that is why this is so important, because I don't think people realize how what is the gap with us mm -hmm. and all the other women. That's right. So Latinas are the least represented in politics. We're the least represented in the C-suite. We have the widest pay gap. So Latinas currently, based on the most recent statistics, are being paid 53 cents on average to the $1 paid to white non-Hispanic men. But Latinas who are immigrants are actually paid as little as 32 cents to the dollar, which most people don't realize. And in addition to that, and as a result, we have the largest wealth gap of anyone else in the country. So it is time. And when I hear you speak, it, it just warms me because I say to women all the time when I'm on the road, you know what, you see this voice that I have and this power that I have. I didn't start out with that. And I know you didn't. And you have said it, you have cultivated a voice. And I, I really commend you because you have a soft and yet powerful voice. And I know that that voice has taken many years to get to where it is today, that you can go on a talk show and change the perception of Latinas and farm workers in one interview. Tell us the history of that voice. So I didn't realize it until fairly recently that I actually found my voice when I was 14 years old. So, you know, I grew up in a very small town. In Fre it's called Fremont, Ohio. It has 16,000 people still today. You know, I'm the daughter and granddaughter of migrant farm workers. My family used to travel all over the country picking crops and eventually settled out in this small town in Ohio. And so when I was growing up every summer, there was always an influx of farm workers, some of whom were my family members. Um, and, and at the same time, there was always an influx of fishermen that would come because we had a, a river that goes through my town. And when I was 14, for some reason, this one Saturday uh, in June, I noticed that the area newspaper had a one page that was dedicated to fishermen. Welcome back, fishermen, it said. And I read it, and I was struck by it. And I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, why isn't there a welcome back farm worker page? And my dad said, oh, I don't know. You should, you should ask. And I come from a very small town. So I literally rode my bike down to the local newspaper and asked to speak with somebody there to talk to him about this issue. And so the editor spoke with me, met with me, and I asked why there was no Welcome Back Farm Worker page. And the editor said, well, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, why don't you write something? And so at the age of 14, I, I, I had enough sense that it was unjust that the farm workers who were coming into our community weren't being seen and they weren't being talked about. And um, from that, I was given the opportunity to start writing. And so I created this bilingual page in our newspaper, my hometown newspaper, 
And I started covering issues impacting Latinos. And it wasn't just farm workers. I started doing stories on all the different activities that were involving the farm, work, the farm worker community and the Latino community. And I wrote for the newspaper until I graduated from high school. And actually, by the time I was a senior, they gave me my own column, which ironically, you know, I was a 17-year-old, and they gave me a column, and it was called The Voice of the People. <laughs> wow. and, and so I wrote for that newspaper until I was about 21 years old, and my beat was the Latino community. And so I didn't realize it then, but that's when I found my voice. Mm. And I never stopped. You know, I kept organizing, I kept speaking out, I kept telling the stories, because I guess I had the sense without really fully appreciating it at the time, I had the sense that if our stories weren't told, then we didn't exist. And if we didn't exist, then who was ever going to address our concerns and our priorities? And so now over the course of, you know, going to college and law school and... Well, but let's talk about that because not a lot of Latinos go to the colleges you've gone to. And let's talk about that because it's important for women to hear that when we are hidden figures, what it takes, the building blocks that it takes to build true self-esteem mm -hmm. that no one can take away mm -hmm. from you. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your education. I think it's very important. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in my town, there were only very few Latinos there. And all the Latinos who lived in the town where I grew up were, were individuals who came from farm worker families who'd settled out. So they'd migrated for years and they decided to stay there. And so I was always a minority voice in that community and I never really quite felt like I fit in. And so my inclination was to go to a place where I felt like I could find a community. And so I went to school in Chicago. I moved to Chicago because I thought, oh, there are going to be so many Latinos there and I'm going to find myself. And when I got to Chicago, actually, I felt like it was more confusing because the other Latino students, my friends, they asked me, did my family go back to Mexico? Did we have a house in Mexico? And actually, my family never went back to Mexico because they came to the country as farm workers who didn't have the money to ever go back. Right? And so we actually didn't have a direct connection to Mexico in the same way. And so that was very confusing to me. And that was actually when I realized that my identity wasn't just about being a Latina in the United States. My identity was very closely tied to this uh, reality of coming from a farm worker community and from a farm worker family and one of migration and sort of trying to hold on to who you are while trying to search for yourself at the same time. Right, And so... Um, but that's how I ended up in Chicago. I went in search of myself, and, and it did lead me to find myself, but not in the way that I thought it would. Um, and so when I was in Chicago, I had gone because I wanted to be a journalist. I thought I would tell the stories of our community just like I'd been doing in our area newspaper. And it was there that I actually made the switch and decided that if I was going to win justice for people who were being oppressed, it was going to be through the law. And that's how I decided to go to law school. It was very fortunate to get accepted and to then you know, go to law school. And then eventually, almost a decade after I'd been practicing law, I went back to school and got my master's at Harvard, uh, which was not something that I ever expected. I didn't even dream about that because frankly, I didn't even know about Harvard. I didn't know to dream about Harvard. You know, so years later, of course, I had the opportunity to go to Harvard and I'm so grateful and privileged to have done so, but it wasn't something that was ever on my radar. So when you finished law school, what kind of law were you practicing? So when I finished law school, I created the first project in the United States to specifically represent migrant farm worker women in gender discrimination cases. And, and my specialty was sexual harassment. So I created a project in Florida to represent farm worker women. And pretty immediately, I started getting calls from around the country because other people had those cases too and needed help. So I was like overnight an expert 
and I had just graduated from, from law school. I didn't feel like I was an expert in anything when I just graduated from law school, but there was no one else in the country focusing on it, so I became an expert overnight. Um, and so, you know, the first couple of years when I had this special fellowship to create this project, I almost exclusively did gender discrimination cases and sexual harassment cases for farmworker women. And um, when the funding ran out after two years, I decided that I wanted to keep the project going, and I approached Southern Poverty Law Center, and I pitched the project, basically, to them. And they allowed me to join at first as a fellow, but within six, they, I went through this very rigorous process of basically setting out what I was going to do over the course of two years as a fellow, down to the month, exactly every month, what was I gonna accomplish? And within the six months, the first six months of being at Southern Poverty, I did every single thing I said I was going to do. And I think that they were sort of surprised because, you know, people make plans all the time, but they don't necessarily hit all the marks, yeah. right? But I did. And so within the first six months of being there, they made me a, a staff attorney and eventually I became a senior um, director of a program. And I created this project called Esperanza, the Immigrant Women's Legal Initiative of Southern Poverty. And it was the first project of its kind in the country. And I basically took that project that I started in Florida and I scaled it and made it national. So from, a, from, from the time you're little to here you are a lawyer, you're in the mode of saving your community. So let's talk about what that means and how, how it's a beautiful thing, but it's also painful mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. when you're saving your community, sometimes you can't save yourself. Right. And we also feel like this need to save our community and that we don't make money. That's true. So how are you grappling with that and then decide to go to Harvard and get even a higher degree, which degrees are very important for us in our community because not so many of us have them, right? What were you thinking during that whole period, even about yourself, or were you not worried about yourself at that moment? Well, no, I mean, that's such a great question because actually there were different moments at which I was sort of struggling with survival, frankly. You know, when I was in, um, first of all, I created the project that I created, the legal project, because sexual violence was an issue that was a problem for people in my family. So my project that I created, I created for very personal reasons. Um, it wasn't just because I knew that there was a gap, it's I knew that there was a gap and it was personal to me mm -hmm. to address that issue. Um, but when I was a fellow in Florida, I was making so little that literally at one point, I was sleeping on the floor in my office and I was working at night at a restaurant called The Taco Lady. So I was practicing law by day oh my God. and I was, working at night at the taco lady and um, you know I had a sort of falling out with a roommate which is why I basically I became homeless and my um, supervisor at the time understood that I couldn't afford to pay rent I, I made so little that I couldn't afford to pay rent on my own and so they actually let me move into the law library in my office so for about six months, I lived in the law library oh, wow. in my office, and I would, I always joked, and I always said, well, the good thing was I was never late for work because I would just come right downstairs from the library, <laughs> library to my office. Um, but it was a real struggle, and, I, and thankfully, when I went to Southern Poverty, I was, I was paid a just wage, and I was able to, to make it a little bit better. Also, Montgomery, Alabama was much more affordable than where I was living. So you've lived I, through the issues that I've our Latinas are living through in terms of parity, pay parity. Exactly. Okay, so then you decided to go to Harvard. How did that happen? Well, so the reason I went to Harvard was actually by recommendation of a mentor. Because the work that I was doing at the time, I was uh, representing, I was working for a transnational legal organization. It was based in Mexico City and I was based in the United States. One of the things that people don't talk about a lot 
about social justice activists is that many of us have experienced very serious threats against us. Wow. And um, my son, I had just had a child. My son was about three months old, and I received my first death threat because of the work that I was doing. Um, and I received, I ended up getting three death threats in a very short period of time. And my, the organization that I was working for at the time had 32 serious security threats within a six-month period. And so it was a very scary time. It was a very difficult time for my family. You know, the daycare that my son was at was on lockdown. I couldn't really go anywhere by myself. It was just a very difficult time. And this, a mentor of mine said, why don't you apply to this program at Harvard to get safe, to get away from the situation for a little while? I'd never even thought about going back to school. I'd been, I had a career. You know, I was in my career. I'd never thought about going back to school. And so, you know, based on the advice of this mentor, I applied to this program at Harvard, and I got accepted. And I actually wasn't going to go. I didn't think I was going to get accepted. And I didn't even apply for financial aid because I didn't think I was going to get accepted, which was crazy. That was a, like, bad, bad move on my part. But um, I got accepted and um, was basically going to turn it down, and then my niece was almost kidnapped. No. Because of my work. And it was then very clear that it wasn't about keeping me safe. It wasn't about, um, you know, just my own desire to do good. It was actually about figuring out how to do good and continue to live the mission that I've set out to live, but also being very cognizant of the fact that there are great risks. And those were risks not just to me, but also to my family. And so that's ultimately why I decided to go back to school. I didn't, you know, have this deep desire to get another degree. I went back to school to get safe. So you go to the Harvard Kennedy School. How does that change your whole mindset, knowing that you're now infiltrated in the establishment of the United States? Which I think when, when, you, when all of us tell our parents, you know, I remember when I first heard of Harvard and I said, I want to apply, because that's all they hire us. <laughs> like, we don't even know that that's there right. is an establishment and that when you become part of it, you really make connections and you know a whole other level of understanding of how this country works. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, right before I graduated from Harvard, actually, I, I contacted my parents about making arrangements for them to come to graduation. And my mom said, okay, Miha, but where, where is Harvard? You know, because there was no placement for where it is in the country, mm -hmm. right? And so I had that very similar experience. But, you know, when I went to Harvard, because I really didn't know what to expect. Again, it wasn't a school that I had dreamed of attending. It's just something that happened given some life circumstances. Um, so when I arrived there, I felt really ill-equipped. Even though I'd been in my career for so long, I felt really ill-equipped. And I remember feeling very self-conscious and eventually had to sort of shake that off. And um, what Harvard did for me is it gave me a new sense of confidence that I hadn't had before because I realized that, that these people who came from all over the world who were so well-established in their careers, who you know, were brilliant and thought leaders and innovators, like I could, I could hang with them, right? I could have good conversations with them. And I, I had a lot of self-doubt going into it. And so that was, that was very good for me personally to realize that I had ideas and that they made sense and that other people thought that they were in line with other things that they were thinking about. So in that way, it was very good personally. But I also think that in many ways, it really opened me up to think about my work very differently. Because as an attorney, I had a very specific vision of how I would do my work and how I would win justice. And when I was at Harvard, it allowed me to think about different ways of getting to the same end, 
right? It, it allowed me to think about how politics came into play with the work that I was doing. So for example, I'd spent years in my career trying to convince politicians about why farmworker women mattered and what farmworker women needed. And at some point, the light bulb clicked, went on, and, it's, and I said, you know what, this, I've been doing this all wrong. The answer isn't to, to get politicians to understand farmworker women. The answer is to, to do everything that I can to elect farmworker women to office. Wow. Right? And so I just think it really caused me to challenge my own way of thinking about my work and how to achieve the same goals, but just using different levers. Well, and I think you're also realizing the power that we do have. Mm. Right? So that was your aha about that. That's like, right. why are we always thinking we're less than or we're beholden to someone else or we are waiting for someone to save us? Exactly. You know, as I say in my book, there's no Prince Charming. That's right. And I think that revelation. Um, and I think your revelation of in your pain is your brand, right? Like that we have to use our pain to guide us. That's right. But we also have to learn along the way how to do it better. Yes. You know, one of the things I, I say often, and I think that this came from that aha moment at Harvard, was I always say that there are no experts on the lives of farmworker women, but farmworker women themselves. There are no experts on Latinas, but Latinas, right? And I think that for so long... We have bought into this idea that other people are going to know better or they're going to be able to find the solutions better. They're going to be able to provide the results because they have a degree or because they come from a certain background. And the reality is the people who know best are the people themselves. And so I think that that aha moment allowed me to see that clearly and also empowered me to really take what I know and put it to action. So you leave Harvard and you and I talked about it, but we have this image that you're gonna be educated in this country and you're gonna make a lot of money when you finish school or graduate school. And you said you had to take a pay cut. So let's talk about that. I did. So when I graduated, um, I received a, a, a grant from Harvard because I wanted to explore this idea of how to get farmworker women elected to office. What are the challenges? What are the obstacles? Why aren't farmworker run, women running? Would farmworker women consider becoming a political appointee? I just really wanted to understand it. and so. I was given a grant to do that research, and I needed a community partner. So I went to, back to D.C., and I found a community partner, and I was given this, these funds. And quickly, the opportunity became available to take, to take a job, because I hadn't intended to apply for a job. I was going to do this research. Anyway, the opportunity presented itself to apply for a job, but there was really not a lot of resources to support the work that needed to be done, and, and not for somebody who'd been in their career for as long as I'd been. Because mind you, when I went back to D.C. after graduating from Harvard, I'd been a practicing attorney for over a decade. I now had not only a law degree, but I had a master's from Harvard. You know, so my, my price point went up, but the resources to pay me to do the work that was needed, they didn't double, they didn't triple, there weren't more resources. And so I had to make the decision about whether I wanted to do good work for our community and take a pay cut or whether I would figure out a, you know, a different route, turn that opportunity down or not. And I think that because I cared so much about the mission that it seemed right to take a pay cut. And you're now sitting back, I mean, I, I don't question for a minute, I did really good work during that period. But I question myself as to why I didn't push harder for more. Hold on. Moneymaker will be right back. Let's get back to the show. 
my uh, finding my voice really did happen over lots of years because there was a lot of questioning, self-doubt, should I speak, should I not speak, is it my turn to speak, all those questions. And I think, you know, I wasn't really given much of a choice in the way that our letter went viral and all of a sudden I was thrust into the spotlight and asked to speak about why we wrote our letter to the women in Hollywood, right? And then it quickly became apparent that if we didn't speak about why, what, our, what our motivations were or even the decades of work that we've done on the issue, if we didn't talk out about it, then basically we were gonna be erased from history. And also let's talk the truth, the money that was being raised for Me Too and Time's Up wasn't necessarily gonna go to other people. So you did something else also, I don't know if you intended to do that, but you created an awareness of where some of that money should go. You know, I think most people who have some awareness about the fact that we wrote this letter that went viral that then led to the spark of the Time's Up movement, most people don't realize that at the time, we had, as an organization, less than $1,000 in the bank to support the work of our organization, right? So I think it's really important for people to realize that there are major social movements that women of color are leading that we've been carrying on our backs. We've been doing that work literally for free. And we are asked sometimes by society to, to save ourselves and to save others with no resources. And that's a question that we have to ask ourselves as a society about why we think that's okay. Because it actually is Well, I think we have to okay. ask ourselves, is society doing that to us or are we still, we still haven't hit that part of our voice that demands what we deserve? I think it's, I think it's some of both. Mm -hmm. I think it's some of both because I think just as we should demand what we deserve, I think that people in society should understand that it's not okay to have people doing things for free. And so I think it's a combination. But, you know, so it's been kind of a journey for me personally to find my voice. And I was put in a position of having to really articulate, you know, our experience, our priorities, our needs, et cetera. Well, and thank God that you can articulate it because you're, I mean, again, I, I also believe you're, you know, you've been studying all your life. You've been doing this work to be ready for this moment. That's right. Let's talk about that. That's right. That sometimes you're doing things in life that seem horrible or seem like, why am I doing this? And yet you are preparing yourself for, um, for that one interview, that you were articulate enough and educated enough to say something in a way people could hear it. Mm -hmm. Well, and, I, and I've actually, for, about the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement, I've said this you know, time and again, that we would not have been able to lean in or step into the moment if we hadn't been doing the work for three decades. Right? This wasn't just all of a sudden there was this, this movement moment or breakthrough and all of a sudden we quickly decided what the priorities were or we quickly came up with the solutions. The solutions were based on the fact that we'd been doing the work for so many years that we knew exactly what the gaps in the law were. We knew exactly why people weren't getting justice. We knew exactly the ways that people were being retaliated against. So that wasn't, those weren't things that just kind of sprung up overnight. It was based on years of experience. People we have a history listening. of revolutionary That's right. movements, even when in Mexico and in our countries in, in Latin America. But for some reason, we're not in the mainstream press. We're not in the mainstream press. I mean, I think it's still a black and white conversation in America. So right. please, first of all, tell me your experience in the press. Do you feel like it's your story and what you've talked about has been covered enough? Do you, what can we all do? What can Latinas do to not be afraid and stand up more? Mm -hmm. How can we be more like all of you women? I think that 
the stories about low-paid women workers, many of whom are Latinas, because the concentration of low-paid women workers in our country actually Latinas over-index in, in the industries where they're being low-paid, low so like agriculture, domestic work, things like that. Um, but I think that as the stories have been told by the media about farm worker women, about domestic workers, one of my main issues is that they always focus on our poverty, they focus on deficiencies, they focus on de uh, victimization, and what they're not focusing on is our power. Mm. They're not focusing on how we have been organizing despite all odds. They're not focusing on how farm worker women are not just organizing themselves, they're organizing their families, they're organizing their community, they're organizing their workplaces. And so I think that while there have been a number of stories that have been done over the past year about sexual harassment specifically against farm worker women and other low-paid women, they always talk about us as victims. Or as, pathologized in the media. And we need to change that. But we're the number one customer in America. So I have to tell you, this is a great conversation because I sit on these corporate boards and I'm with advertisers. And when they talk about us, they say Latinas are the number one emerging market in the world, which means we are the number one customers. Uh, we are the solution to the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. How could there be this dichotomy that a certain group of people see us and are afraid of us, that if we stop buying their products, they go under? And yet we still, like we, what our kids are listening about us is a pathologized view of us. I mean, you know I went back to school for my psychology degree and I wrote my dissertation on this because I could not believe how the DMV was pathologizing multicultural women mm. and how everything, how, they, how it's misinterpreted as that something's wrong with us because they don't really understand our behavior. Mm -hmm. So to me, I look at that and I say, okay, what is our call to action? I know you've been very clear about what do you think are the two or three things that we need to focus on as a community? Can you talk about that? Well, first, I think it has a lot to do with the work that you've been doing. We have to lift each other up. We have to talk about our power and we have to invest in each other. To me, those are the three key things because I think that while companies might be afraid of us or while they might think they might see us as the emerging market, we don't always understand the power that we have. That's right. And so I think that part of the work that has to be done is, is being very clear about the fact that we do have power and we are to be reckoned with. And part of making that happen, in my opinion, is also ensuring that we are lifting each other up. Mm -hmm. Just like you're doing right now with me, you're lifting up the voice of the farm worker community, you're lifting up my work, but really what we're doing is we're lifting up many people at the same time. And we have to keep doing that because we have to reinforce this idea that what is, what is being said about us as being victims, as being poor, et cetera, that's all, that's all noise. And we have to be able to hear past the noise. And the way we're gonna be able to hear past that noise is by having other people who are saying, yes, but we are spending more money than anyone else. We are consuming more movies. We're consuming more products. We are you know, the, one of the fastest growing demographics in the US labor economy. We have to send the message about all the positive ways in which we're con contributing. And we have to, I think, be validators for one another. So the top three things for me are, are very uh, squarely focused on lifting each other up, talking about our power and investment. 
So women out there that are listening to this, how can they get involved right now? How can they speak up right now? How should their energy be used? And I want to be very careful how we say that because I feel, for me, like I feel my commitment is to women like you. Because I don't think it's fair that women like you that are putting your entire, you have, you have done an incredible job of getting yourself educated, speaking up for our community, doing all these things. I don't want you to be a wounded healer. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to get to my age and be broke mm -hmm. because you're helping so much that no one's helping you. Mm -hmm. So to me, I also look at how do we empower each other economically? Mm -hmm. How do we really understand and infiltrate the economic system in this country that is really designed for us and we are not taking advantage of it? Mm -hmm. You know, when I look at even my own career, how many young guys and, and Jewish guys and black guys you know, call me up to come and work with me? Not a lot of Latinas. Because nos da pena to call each other, mm -hmm. right? Or to ask for things. Right. Or to ask for help. Right. So let's talk about that too. What can women do and economically, how should we be shifting? We have to be open about money. We have to talk about money. I mean, I don't know how many people I know, including myself, who were raised not to talk about money. Don't talk about how much you're making. Don't talk about how, you, how much you have. Don't talk about how much you don't have. Don't talk about debt. We can't be afraid of money. We have to, we have to be committed to educating ourselves and our children about money. When I went away to college, I, I had grown up giving my money, any money I raised from babysitting, any money I had, had, had taken in through jobs I had, I would give my money to my parents. Of course, that's what we all do. That's what we right? do, right? But when I got to college, I didn't know how to manage money because I hadn't been taught to manage money. So I think we have to talk about money. We have to teach each other about how to manage money. We have to talk about things like investments and saving, which isn't, you know, to, I think to other communities, the, they start very young educating their children about the importance of saving. And I think so many of us are used to just surviving, having just enough to survive, that the, that the ability to think about saving that is such a luxury that we can't even, haven't even allowed ourselves to get there. But we have to change that. Well, I think no one ever tells us, because our parents have had so much trauma, that mission and money are two parallel tracks mm. that are equally important. That's right. Right? That's right. And that we are mission-driven people, and we can't be happy alone with money, right? Money alone doesn't make us happy. But mission with no money is a dark place. That's right. And, and think, you know, think about how much more good Alianza could have done if it had been funded, right? Think about what would have happened if Tarana Burke's Me Too movement had been funded a decade ago when she started it. Right? Think about how much more we could have done if some of us actually had money to be able to survive college and law school and whatever. You know, we haven't, because we haven't had those resources, we don't even have the ability to dream about what it could be like, let alone make the change that we could make if we had the resources. We have to change that. We have to actually talk about money, talk about investment, talk about how to, the, the fact that we shouldn't feel bad about wanting to, be, to do good but actually having enough money to live on. Well, if you look at, you know, I'm someone who has worked for seven billionaires, and what I learned, I learned a lot from them because they did have a mission to make the world a better place, but they had to go make money first and be okay and put the oxygen mask on first yes. 
and then give away their money the rest of their lives. I don't think we realize that you don't have to be a bad person if you're well off. I mean, look, you've been dealing with a lot of celebrities in Hollywood. They're not poor. And they have the ability now to use their voice and their money and their power to change things. I, I also think we have to elevate hidden, hidden women. Yeah. Women that are actually a you, that has done all the right things, gone to all the right schools, sacrificed. That's who we should be admiring too. Not all of us are gonna be J-Lo or Beyonce, mm -hmm. nor do we wanna be, mm -hmm. right? So why do we not value that and put those women on a pedestal? Why don't our Latinas know who every woman like you is? Mm -hmm. Hence why I wanna talk to you. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like that is a more important mission and a more important thing for women. Women can become us. Well, and I think it's really, really important to do what you're saying because history will be written about this moment. And there is a real risk that if we don't record it, we will be written out of it. That's and when right. people look back at this moment and think about this period of time and they think about Latinas and they think about Latinos, what will be covered is the fact that we've been called rapists and criminals and all these terrible things. But what may not be covered is all the people, everyday women, everyday Latinas, who are heroes in their own right, whose contributions are not being written about. And so what you're doing is so important because you're helping to record the history. And there's a real risk that if someone like you were not doing this, that, that this would never make it into the history of our country. And when we look back on this period of time, we're only going to see negative things and we're not gonna see all the very important things that we are contributing to the country. Okay, so what do we say to every Latina and every young Latina? What could they be doing on social media? What could, why did it take celebrities to create Me Too? Why, do, why cannot, can't we, all these young women, all these ordinary women, how can we lift our voices in a way that we're heard? I think it is really important for us as Latinas to make a commitment to lift up other Latinas that are doing important work. It doesn't have to be high profile work. It, it, can, just, it can be good work. It can be someone that you admire. We have to break this problem that I think exists in our community where there's a sense of jealousy or maybe there's a sense of competition. We don't have time for that. We don't. We need to really commit to, to, to lifting up other people who are doing good work so that people, so they can be seen. We need to do that. And, but the other thing is I think that many of us were raised to not cause trouble. We were raised not to rock the boat. We weren't raised to call people out. So if some, someone does something that's offensive to us, if someone says something that, that they shouldn't say about Latinas or about Latinos, et cetera, we sometimes feel as though we just have to be quiet and keep our heads down because we don't want to cause any trouble. At least that's how I was raised. And I think that we have to really reframe things to think about it, not as calling people out, but calling people in. Mm. We build community. We naturally build community. And if we feel uncomfortable calling people out because we think it's gonna be problematic, well then let's call them in and say, you know what, I heard you say this and actually I think you might not realize what that means when I hear it. Or, you know, it isn't really acceptable anymore for you to say this or I don't appreciate it when you, when you say X, Y, or Z 
or it hurts my feelings, which is what you mm -hmm. and I were talking about. Mm -hmm. We have to be committed to calling people in. So the voice doesn't have to be angry and in your face. Maybe that's stylistically not us, but the voice has to come out, even if it's in a vulnerable, it's in a way of pain, mm -hmm. of being open to saying, that hurt me, right? Or let me teach you, mm -hmm. or let me give you an alternative. But the, the, we don't have the, the opportunity at this moment in time with everything that we're seeing, all the ways in which our community is suffering, we cannot be silent. Even though many of us have been raised to be silent because being silent means we're not gonna get fired, we're not gonna lose out an opportunity, we're not gonna make people upset. We, don't, we can't be silent. There's too much on the line. So if we don't feel comfortable calling people out because we think it'll be aggressive or we think it won't be well received, then let's call people in and teach them about how they might be able to do better and not offend people in the process and actually get to solutions rather than creating new problems. So tell me, let's give them specific tactics. Is it through social media? Is that the powerful place today for Latinas and women to speak up? Is it in their office? Is it with, where, where should we be speaking up? So first of all, I think that on social media, you know, one of the things I do is I try to dedicate different periods of time on my social media to different women who are doing good work. I, I, you know, if you were to go to my social media, you would see that I have different profiles that I've put up of different women because that's important to me. I think any one of us can do that. Any one of us can use our Instagram or Twitter or what have you to put some, a, a story up of, a, of an individual, a Latina who's doing good work. That's easy. That's a low bar, low bar, to, you know, low bar for us to be able to um, surpass. But I think that in terms of the calling in, I think that right now there are a lot of articles that are being written about the Latino community that are offensive in many ways. Why do we still have media outlets that are using the terminology illegal? I don't even get that anymore. Why does that happen? So you know what? We need to post on our social media and we need to call an X publication and tell them that we don't use that language, that no one's illegal, right? We need to be, feel comfortable doing that on social media, in my opinion, as well. But I think in day-to-day -day conversation, we need to also exercise that. And, and for people who feel uncomfortable because they're worried about how people will react, well, then practice. Practice with someone. Practice with someone with, what would you do if someone came up to you and said, oh, you know, uh, Latinos are stealing all of the jobs, which we hear over and over again, right? What would you say to that? I think there has to be a little bit of I'm so glad you said that because I tell women a lot, a voice is cultivated, right? If you don't practice, it's like when someone says something to you and you go home and you say, I wish I would have thought to say X, Y, and Z. So then you have to practice. To practice. What if someone were to say this? What if a boss were to say that? What if this one says this? What would I say? And practice it with a friend so that when that moment happens, you're ready. And then you feel like, wow, I did it. I really, I mean, I really feel like we need to become super, as my friend Sandra Cisneros says, super chingonas. That's right. What are we waiting for? Well, we are for? super chingonas, but, but now we have to exercise Exercise that. it. I mean, what are we waiting for? Right? That's right. You know, when I first started practicing law, I was scared of everything. I was so scared of everything. And so before I had to make a call to another attorney, what have you, I would close my office door and I would write out everything that I wanted to say, like a script. And then I would practice it and then I would make that call. And I would feel better. I felt prepared. And I feel like in many ways we have to do that with other 
things that happen in our daily lives. Like, how would you react if someone said you're not paying your taxes? As someone, did, I was on a, on a train in, in Atlanta and someone accused me of stealing all the jobs and, and not paying taxes because I was Latina. You know, like these shocking moments that we hear about that actually happen in real life. How do you respond to them? I think we have to be prepared for that. But it's not just that. It's not just the things that are offensive to us, but it's also things like, how are we going to go into a salary negotiation? How are we going to ask for what we need? How are we going to respond when someone takes credit for our work or when we're, you know, misquoted or not quoted or erased? Those are things I think we need to think about. Like, what is the top 10 list of things that happen to us as Latinas that we know are universal experiences and how would we respond? And maybe not just Latinas, as women. Right? Mm. What are the things that happen to us frequently that actually end up cumulatively having a negative impact on our careers, right? So if you, if you write a paper and, you're not, and, and someone then uses it later and you're not credited, well, it might help someone else get ahead, but them not crediting you might hold you back, right? If we don't ask for the salary that we deserve once or twice or even three times because we feel uncomfortable, then over the course of our careers, what is the impact, right? So I think that we have to do a little bit of work as a community to figure out what some of those roadblocks and barriers are and then actually workshop it in some ways and practice to figure out what our response would be if that were to ever come up. And maybe it'll never come up. And maybe if it doesn't come up, then that's wonderful. That's great. Terrific. But to your point, if it does happen, then we have to be prepared to be able to respond. And I think it's the preparation that many of us haven't had an opportunity to really do the homework on. Well, I'm just beyond proud of you. And I vow to support you in the work you're doing because it really is exceptional work. And I just, I'm just proud of you. Thank you. Moneymaker is a production of Money News Network. Moneymaker is written and hosted by me, Nelly Galan. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Thanks for listening. See you next time.